in the first service there was uh, a video of Chris explaining that. I thought that's what was coming. I like the uh, real examples there. That's something to look forward to. Listen, if you have not uh, been baptized, you put your faith in the Lord Jesus. One of the uh, things that is very important here at Trinity is that you learn to take next steps with Jesus, following the Lord Jesus. And if you've come to faith in Christ, that's a very important next step because that's one of the things that he asks of all of those who would follow him to identify with him in his death and burial and in his resurrection. Uh, Could I just tell a little quick story about that since you didn't uh, do that thing? When I was uh, working with the church down in the uh, Columbia River Gorge, Uh, we were planning to have a baptism service coming up, and there had been a lot of talk about it and so forth. Well, one day as uh, uh, one of the other uh, men was preaching, I went around to the Sunday school classes just to pop in and say hi and whatnot. And the Sunday school class of third and fourth graders, um, Susie was their teacher, and she said, Pastor Andy, uh, we've got questions for you about baptism. I thought, oh, great, little impromptu teaching lesson here. So she asked me to explain what baptism was for, and the kids had some really good questions. And so I invited one of the little guys that I had got to know because of being in their home and whatnot. I said, well, come here and just kind of sit on my knee. And I just kind of kneeled down, and he came and sat on my knee, and I said, now, When a person dies, we ordinarily have to bury them, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I've been to funerals. Okay. So I said, now, right now, uh, Isaiah here is alive. But when he dies, we bury him. And I laid him back like that. And I said, but Jesus doesn't leave us dead. He makes us alive again in him. Now, excuse me, I've got a bad hip. See if I can get up from here, okay? (laughs) All right. Uh, Running on spare parts. So so the following Sunday, we were doing uh, doing the baptism service, and so I uh, baptized this one guy, and Isaiah was sitting right there in about the third row with his folks, and... um, so I put this guy under, and Isaiah just blurted out, He's dead! <laughs> I mean, real loud. And then I brought the guy up, and he says, Oh, he's alive! And he was glad again. Well, uh, that was very, very precious to me, not only because uh, he got the, the truth of that, but because of uh, the extraordinary reality that that illustrates. Um, God makes us alive by his grace. But then we need to continue to live by that grace. And sometimes we forget what grace is for. Grace is given to us by God to empower us to live an otherwise impossible life. And the grace of God that we're going to be looking at today is a life-changing kind of a grace. As we're looking at uh, the, the overall theme in Titus of a healthy church, 
Well, one of the things we want to understand is that a, a healthy church is energized by God's grace alive. Not a static kind of a grace, but a grace that really moves us, a grace that changes us day to day to be more and more like the Lord Jesus. Like the Lord Jesus for the sake of others. That's what grace is for. That's why God gives us uh, this life-transforming power. But sometimes we get stuck in our life. We struggle with sin. And one of the most common things among Christians, and one of the things that's sort of uh, kept out of, out of sight, uh, is the reality that we all continue to wrestle with sin. And we all continue to trip and fall. Or sometimes we just give up and go jump in. Uh, just like jumping into the swimming pool on a, on a hot summer day. We just go all in. Well, God doesn't want us to live that way. God doesn't remove the struggle from us, but he does give us the grace and the power to endure the struggle and to actually uh, make progress in holiness, becoming more and more like this God that we celebrate when we sing, You are holy. Holy Lord of heaven and earth. And that's who he is calling us to be as his children and as we live together in his church here. I want to read to you uh, uh, something that just really grabbed my attention on the matter of uh, the importance of understanding grace and what it's really for. This is a a brief story about a pastor uh, named Tommy Allen. Tommy Allen is a pastor in a formerly decaying urban setting that is now being rehabbed and repopulated by young professionals and homosexuals. Responding to a simple expression of compassion from Pastor Tommy, a gay man began to attend the church. For months, the man would cry in every service, but would not commit his life to Christ. Finally, he came to speak to the pastor about the condition of his soul. The man said that he had not confessed his need of Christ because he assumed that his life of sin would disqualify him from heaven. What a tragedy Uh, to know your sin, but to let it keep you from Christ because of a misshapen, a misinformed, a terribly terribly, um, uh, warped misunderstanding of what God's grace really is. God's grace is not about earning. It's not about getting good enough. It's not about going and getting your act together and then you can be okay. It has nothing to do with that. God comes to us right where we are, just as we are. He knows us, and that's why he sent Jesus. He knows we need a Savior. Well, let me get back to the story. The young man says, I know that I cannot measure up, so I have not even asked God to accept me. Well, the pastor acknowledged that his first inclination was to tell the man to correct his behavior, obey the scriptures, and then God will receive you. Instead, he remembered the lessons of the gospel that this ministry here and this uh, community had taught him. 
A number of former homosexuals attended Tommy's church. What they said drew them from the gay community to this church was not regular condemnation of the evil of homosexuality. What intrigued them and ultimately won them was preaching that undermined the concept that goodness qualifies you for heaven. Now don't miss that. The declaration of preaching that undermines this false idea that being good enough qualifies you for heaven. That's just not the case. That's actually a false gospel. Tommy does not preach this message, uh, the message to undermine that false idea, simply to appeal to those who have been put off by the condemnation of the church. He says the pure message of the gospel that God is not bought by human goodness touches something deep in the homosexual conscience. It touches something deep in the heart of every sinner if we really, really get it. Because until we come to terms with the fact that we really, really are a, an inherently rebellious rejecter of God, we want to do our own thing. We want to live without God. We want to figure out a way to make life work out for us, even if it means walking on other people, even coming to murder, maybe not physical murder, but assassination of uh, character through gossip and so forth. Tommy goes on, Many gays believe their lifestyle is wrong, but, can, but they can compensate for it by being good in other areas of life. Now, does that kind of ring a bell with you that, well, uh, you know what you do and what you think is wrong, but maybe you'll make up for it in other areas. And every fallen, every fallen human being believes that this false idea that there's some kind of a great cosmic scales and that, yes, Andy sins, and boy, he's trouble with God, but if he really scrambles and works hard, he can throw some good over here and maybe equal things out and hope to make it to the end of this life, at least with a pretty close balanced scale. Well, uh, that's a totally false idea. It didn't work that way. Uh, God tells us very clearly in His Word that His sins are offensive to Him, that our sin separates us from Him. But I'm so grateful that in His love, He has taken the initiative to, to come to us and address us and teach us the truth that is as it is in Christ Jesus. Well, uh, Tommy confronted this man who was protesting that he could never be good enough for God. So Tommy just gave him the pure, simple gospel. Stop trying to be good enough. When you come to God through faith in Christ, He makes you as righteous as Christ. God does not receive you on the basis of your work, but because you trust in Christ's work on your behalf. Well, the words made sense and gave this young man hope. And he eventually trusted in Christ. You see, the pure gospel sounds almost too simple to be effective. But here's the thing. It's the power of God. 
It's not our clever ideas or winsome words. It's the power of God. Well, four days after he gave his heart to Christ, this young gay man's commitment began to waver. His resolve faltered. So he prepared himself to go out for an evening of cruising for sexual encounters. But the Holy Spirit was battling in his conscience. So the young man called the pastor. Pastor Tommy, I'm getting ready to go out and cruise. Oh, said the questioning, but not panicked pastor. Well, I suppose you think that's wrong. Well, of course I do. Well, what am I supposed to do? Listen to this. Well, what do you think someone is supposed to do who is as righteous as Christ? Does that give you a different take on how you deal with sin? Um, See, if we believe the gospel that we really do become as righteous as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that can have a huge impact on how we continue to take these next steps in following Him, to become more and more like Him. Well, the sin-damaged young man hung up the phone after talking with Pastor Tommy, and days later reported to his pastor that he did not go cruising that night. Instead, after the phone call, the young man got a piece of paper and pen, and he wrote over and over again, I am as righteous as Christ. 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 He wrote that over and over again. And that little exercise helped him through that massive temptation. And it was a real breakthrough in his walk with the Lord. We've been talking about doing, uh, taking small steps, uh, training to learn how to better walk with the Lord Jesus, to learn how to, to better live this impossible Christian life. Uh, it's small things like writing the truth, writing the truth. I remember counseling with a, uh, a couple that were having real trouble in their marriage, and uh, the wife came on one occasion and said that she was the big problem because she just wasn't good enough. And she began to say all the things that her husband said was wrong with her. And so after listening for a while, I said, well, I'd like to invite you to come back. We'll make another appointment for two weeks from now. And meanwhile, uh, you get a little notebook, a journal, uh, whatever you want to write in, keep this record. But because I know you know how to use uh, software and all this other stuff to study the Bible, I want you to find everything you can find in the Bible that God says you are as his daughter. Can you do that? And she said, yeah, I guess, can't think of any, but okay. (laughs) Two weeks later, she came back and she had this eight and a half by 11 spiral notebook and she had page after page after page of truth that God says about a person who believes in him. It changed her life. Well, I still can't believe that uh, such lame advice would do something like that. 
Why did it? It's because of the power of the Word of God, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we're, we're wanting to be a, a healthy church that's energized by God's grace that is alive, not a dead grace, not a grace that's uh, just kind of uh, off in a theological dictionary somewhere. I remember growing up, uh, blessed to grow up in a Christian home, and we were taught early on that grace is unmerited favor. Okay, well, what's unmerited favor? You know, put some, put some feet on that. Uh, well, it's something you, you, you get and you don't deserve. Okay, well, that's close. But unmerited favor is a really short definition as you look all the way through Scripture. It fits every time, but it really doesn't give us something to, to grab onto and to, to work into our life. Do I just say, well, I'm really tempted to sin, so I need more unmerited favor. Uh, well, let's, let's drill down to cases. Then, when I was a teenager, I learned that you could say grace is uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. Oh, hey, I like that. That's clever. God's riches at Christ's expense. Okay, so here I am struggling with sin, and uh, my buddies are saying, come on, we got, a, we got 24 of them, let's go drink them all. And I'm saying, man, what am I going to do here? I don't want to do that. Oh, I know. I will have, uh, I need God's riches at Christ's expense. That didn't help. So, uh, by the way, I got puking sick, so it served me right. But uh, we thought it was fun because we were underage and all this other stuff, foolishness. Well, let's try to define grace that we can get some handle on here. Here's something that has just helped me tremendously. Uh, Grace is God's personal power working in us, making us willing and able to do His will. Now, this removes grace from being some theological dictionary definition. It removes it from being just a kind of a cosmic credit card that covers over any bad I, I might do. No, God's grace is very personal. It's God Himself working. It's His power working in us. Now, if you want to think about God's power, all you've got to do is take a little serious time and just think about what we know right now of what's out there beyond our atmosphere. I mean, get beyond all the space junk that's whizzing around right now and get out there, uh, what about our own sun? A great nuclear reactor out there, and uh, it energizes uh, this beautiful growth that... We sang about how God not only manages the seasons, but he works in us, making beautiful things out of dust. Uh, God's personal power is extraordinary, and he chooses to exercise it in us with a purpose. Because naturally, we are unwilling to trust God. We are unwilling to believe that he really knows the best way to live. So we keep trying to work around and, and disobey and still get away. God wants to make us willing to do His will. So we get to the point of saying, Lord, I want to get rid of this sin. I, 
I want to follow you in baptism. I want to uh, share my faith with somebody else. But I just, man, I just, I can't, I can't get over these hurdles. Well, that's where His grace makes us able to do His will. And so if you're wrestling in your life, I hope you'll grab on to this concept of grace is God personally, by His Holy Spirit, working in our life to make us willing and able to do God's will. Now let's look at uh, Titus 2.11. We're just going to look at two little uh, short verses here. But uh, look at how it uh, talks about the grace of God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So here we see that God's grace is active. God's grace is always in action. It's never a static thing. It's always in action, and it's always personal. Here we see that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. Uh, That's action. It's the word from which we get our English word epiphany. It's like if uh, you're in a dark room and all of a sudden somebody turns on a bright floodlight. Pow! That's an epiphany. All of a sudden you get something that's shocking and startling. Well, the grace of God is that way. When it finally hits us, it's that way when we come to Christ initially, and it's that way when we come again and again to Christ to learn to live His kind of life for the blessing and the glory of God and the sake of others, just like Jesus lived. Now, this grace of God is, is described as having appeared because there were countless ages when the grace of God was hidden. Uh, God held it back in large degree because he's working deliberately and purposefully. And we live in a very blessed time because God's grace has appeared. It has been revealed. But there was a time when uh, it was a mystery. Uh, People didn't understand. They would read the scriptures, the Old Testament, and say, hey, I don't get it that Gentiles could become part of the people of God. No, the people of God are the Jewish people. And so they had all kinds of ways of trying to figure out what that meant. Well, when the grace of God appeared, it appeared bringing salvation for all people. Well, that was a huge wake-up call. That was, that was worse than a blinding light waking you up out of a sound sleep. Paul writes and describes it like this to Timothy. And Paul, as you know, was a prisoner when he wrote this. He says to Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Have you ever been embarrassed about being a Christian? Come on, be honest. My buddies want me to go have some beers with them. We were underage. Shouldn't be doing it. I was embarrassed to say, hey, look. I belong to Jesus. I don't need that to have a good time. I was embarrassed. And so we get talked into doing things because we're embarrassed uh, about being a Christian. 
Um, I remember one time we were going, uh, several of us were going to a big uh, concert thing down in the Rose, Rose Garden in Portland a number of years ago, and all kinds of Christians are going, and uh, there was a group that was really kind of uh, weird, <laughs> acting weird, going along. And this one guy with us literally went across the street, and we said, Ian, what are you doing over there? <laughs> well, later on he said, man, I sure hate being seen with Christians. I thought, hello, there are several thousand of us in here. <laughs> what are you doing here? Well, he felt strange because of someone else's expression of their relationship with God. And so we get embarrassed about uh, the way people live out their Christian life. Or we get embarrassed just because it's a person that we ordinarily wouldn't hang around with. But lo and behold, they're a true Christian. So what are we going to do about that? Well, Paul addresses that. He knew that that was a tendency. How would you like it if, uh, you know, your, your pastor, your pastor Timothy, is it, if word gets out that he's a close friend of a jailbird. He's been in and out of prison countless times. Hmm, what kind of friends does this guy keep? Well, Paul said, don't be ashamed about this because this is all about our life for the Lord. He goes on, he says, the power of God, verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. There's that word. His purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now, wait a minute. This has been around since all eternity? That ought to be a clue that this has something to do with God himself, who alone is eternal, self-existent. He is the one who is the author of grace. He is the one who brings his grace in the presence of of his person, Jesus Christ, his son. It goes on in verse 10, but it's now revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought real life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and a teacher. Now, what Paul is getting at here is that the grace of God is a very extraordinary thing, and we sometimes uh, are so used to using the word and talking about it that it's easy for us to be, begin to uh, fail to appreciate it. This is the grace of God that acts in bringing salvation. You see, we can't get it any other way. In fact, in uh, Romans chapter 10, there's this interesting little uh, quote out of the Old Testament, should we ascend up into heaven or descend into hell? Uh, how are we going to come up with this salvation? And he says, well, the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's if you will confess Jesus Christ as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the mouth, confession is made resulting in salvation. And with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. You see, there's not just getting saved, but it's getting changed. Getting changed from unrighteous to righteous. Now, this is the gospel that brings salvation for all people. A lot of times in thinking in missions, 
we have kind of an ethnic default. We think about tribal groups over there and so forth. But I've got good news for you, at least in the context of Titus. He's addressing these segments of humanity that we like to divide ourselves up into. Notice uh, he talks about old people, young people, men, women, masters, slaves. Do you hear it going on? See, we, we live in a misconception that, that we don't have class distinctions. We do. We're just so used to it. But it's there. It's endemic in our, in our old fallen nature. And God wants us to believe and to live as if salvation is really for all people. I love the, uh, the challenge that Paul gave to the people on Mars Hill. Uh, these were erudite philosophers. They knew it all. And yet, they didn't know God. And Paul tapped into the deep history, uh, if you please, the, the cultural DNA of the city of Athens when he told them about the unknown God. Because the unknown God uh, had gained prominence in Athens several centuries before. There was a terrible bubonic plague that hit the city. People were dying right and left. They were piling bodies, uh, burning them to get rid of them. Uh, One report even said that you could see the city of Athens from far out at sea in the dead of night just by the fires, the funeral pyres, burning dead bodies. Well, they tried everything they possibly could do to make the plague go away. They appealed to every god they knew. Still didn't help. So they heard about a guy from the island of Crete that was uh, really good at tapping into the gods. And so they brought him over. And he did all of his pagan rituals and rites. And he said, are you sure you've tried every god that you possibly know? And they had a gazillion of them. They said, yeah, we tried them all. Nothing works. So this guy tried his best. Didn't work. He finally said, you know what's going on here? I think there's a God that we don't know. What do you say we offer a sacrifice to the unknown God, just in case? Okay, sounds good to us. We've tried everything. So they got a band of sheep together, and at the guy's instructions, they marked one sheep, and they turned him loose in a pasture and let him wander. And wherever the sheep with a mark on it would lay down, they were supposed to build an altar, sacrifice all the other sheep to the unknown God. So they did this, and the plague broke. And they were all like, ooh. The unknown God really is powerful. But they still didn't know him. So centuries later, when Paul comes along, what a fantastic place to start explaining to them the true and living God. He said, I've seen this altar to the unknown God. The one that you ignorantly worship is the one I'm going to tell you about. And he told them about Jesus Christ. And then he told them about the reality of judgment And he says, you know, God has appointed a day in which he will judge all mankind by that one person that he has raised from the dead, Jesus, the Son of God. 
Well, that's where all these philosophers lost it. They said, you know, Paul had them going up to there, and they said, ha, everybody knows nobody comes back from the dead. But Jesus did. You see, this little ritual of baptism is a profound declaration of a reality that is earth-changing if you just really think about it, if you get it. And so the power of God's grace at work brings salvation even to the most erudite uh, people, the ones that have the most civilization and all the greatest things. They also need it. Now this brings me around to asking, when you think about uh, people that would need God's salvation, who comes to mind? Who comes to mind? Would you invite them to join you for Resurrection Sunday? Oh man, I'd give anything if I could get them to come to church. Well, why don't you? Well, what if they say no? So what? Nothing lost. Well, I'm embarrassed. Well, that's okay. Uh, God is greater. In fact, he says, don't be embarrassed about being a Christian because he knows we struggle with that. Well, uh, they're liable to meet some of my friends here that are kind of weird. And, uh, you know, as I look around, I say that's a possibility. Uh, Especially if they would meet me. But, uh, no, I get to be home with my wife on that Sunday. Let me get back. Invite somebody to come with you. Do you know the most powerful thing that attracts people to a church is you? A personal relationship with you is the most powerful thing to draw somebody to the Lord Jesus. And the God who gives us everything we need for life and godliness gives us his grace to overcome these personal little uh, uh, tripping things that we put in our way. So I want to challenge you to invite a family, friends, neighbor, whoever it is that God lays on your heart and bring them to celebrate the truth that Jesus is alive. Well, another action of this grace of God is it trains us. This is the word, this is a word that is used for teaching small children. It's also a term that means uh, disciplining as uh, an athlete would discipline himself. Remember a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Chris talking about what would you have to do if you were going to run a marathon? Well, uh, I think I would just call for the funeral director and be done with it. But many of you could begin the preparation. You could do it little at a time. Take the next steps. Do the next thing. Get in training. And that's what the grace of God does for us. It does little things like motivating us to write, I am as righteous as Jesus Christ. That's a little thing. But in the scheme of things, that's a next step in training to live in the reality of the powerful grace of God. God's, uh, God's grace trains us negatively and then trains us positively. It trains us to say no 
to ungodliness and to worldly desires. Now, in my own experience, just saying no to a temptation to sin, that was really tough. You know, it doesn't seem to work. But you know what I have found is really wonderful? I just talk out loud if I have to, if I'm by myself. I just say, Lord Jesus, I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. Uh, I want to live with you. I enjoy your joy much more than anything else. And just doing a little exercise like that is a powerful thing in my own life. And it's been a long time growing. And I want to encourage you to, to take on things like that. Trust the grace of God to train you in righteousness. Uh, so learn to say no. And learn to say yes to the right things that God wants us to be doing. You say, well, seems like if I live that way, I'm going to just need a lot of grace. Yeah. (laughs) God isn't running short either. That's the good news. Somebody said that, uh, one of my my favorite uh, teachers on the Christian life said that um, an apprentice of the Lord Jesus and a, a disciple, he said an apprentice of the Lord Jesus burns grace like a 747 burns fuel on takeoff. You see, that's a lot. You mean, I got to ask God for grace every day? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Even if you're one of those that wake up and say, uh, oh, it's morning, good Lord. (laughs) You need grace. We need grace. There's nothing wrong with appealing to God for His grace. He loves to give it to us in Christ Jesus. He trains us to say yes. Look at these uh, um, here are the yes things. Uh, He wants to teach us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present world. So what does a Christian uh, Christian life look like? Well, here are three powerful descriptors, and if you notice, they are all relational. He says, live self-controlled. That has to do with God's grace working in us personally. To live upright. That's a word that's sometimes translated righteousness. It's the idea that we live in the kind of a relationship with God where His justice is part of who we are. We are keen on our Christian ethics. We endeavor always to be fair and right, equitable with other people with whom we interact. As we interact with one another, justice, godly justice, characterizes his people as part of a healthy church. We're concerned about justice, not just out there, not just down at the southern border, We're concerned about justice right here. He says, do these things, live this way in this present age. In other words, today. Now, I've been doing some research and I found a really good deal. You know where you can do justice? Real easy. It's right where you live every day. That's the only place you can do it, by the way. And that's why God says to do it in this present age. We can't plan to do it in the nebulous future. 
But we can't go back and do it in the past. We can only do it today, where we are, with the people with whom we interact. That's where the grace of God really needs to kick in. And then to live godly. This is the idea of living in such a way that people recognize us as belonging to God. Um, I remember one time my, my brother and I, we were uh, both in college, and we were home for the summer up there in farm country. We went to the coffee shop with Dad. So we walk in, and Dad's walking. My brother Ben, he's following Dad. I'm walking along. We go sit down in the booth. Uh, this lady came over with a handful of cups and coffee pot. She says to my dad, Well, George, these must be your sons. And seriously, I thought, I have never been in here before. And so I just said, What makes you think that? And she says, You walk just like your dad. (laughs) Duh. Okay. Family resemblance. There are little habits that we pick up in the family that we live in. There are uh, ways of thinking that are characteristic of our family. And it's amazing how the more we learn to live like Jesus, people will begin to say, hmm, that person's very kind, or that person is very pleasant. wonder what's going on with them. Why do they live that way? Well, that's part of God beginning to speak through us, to preach the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we begin to really live in the great command, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourself. And then Jesus said, this is my command, a new command, to love one another as I have loved you. I want to give you the challenge as you interact with people after the service ends here. If you see somebody that... uh, maybe rubs you the wrong way or total stranger to you, ask yourself, I wonder if I could lay down my life for that person. Well, you see, that's, that's where Jesus wants us to get in our love in the body of Christ, that we would lay down our life for another Christian. That's a high, that's a high hurdle. I'm not there, but I'm training and appropriating the grace of God. The last thing that's important in this couple little verses, and then next week we'll be more in this, uh, the grace shows up in the person of Jesus Christ. He's God our Savior. There are some people who argue of whether or not Jesus is really God, but this passage, this little phrase right here, is one of the most powerful statements. Uh, The original language just anchors it rock solid that he's talking about God, our Savior, and Jesus Christ. Same. The same. This is the great God of grace who comes and gives his life for us. He is full of grace and truth. Uh, He teaches us, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus said, and learn from me. He said, I want to be your teacher. 
I want to teach you the best way to live. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. My yoke is easy, my burden's light. You're going to find rest for your soul if you learn from Jesus. He's full of grace and truth. The Holy Spirit very graciously trains us. He uses the Scriptures to do that. Our Heavenly Father lovingly disciplines us to remind us that we really are His children, whom He loves. He would rather that Jesus die than to go on living without us. That's how much God loves us. And so He wants us to become more and more like His lovely Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. I love Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 10. He described Jesus of Nazareth like this. He said, Jesus of Nazareth, who went around doing good. (laughs) I really like that. A lot of times you say, oh yeah, he's the guy who did miracles and all of that. Well, he just went around doing good. And you know, he calls us to do that. Not to gain his favor, not to get people to think we're some kind of a wow. Uh, He wants us to do good because that's what he would do if he were in your shoes. And if you know him, he actually is. (laughs) He lives within you. So we can live this out by his grace. Remember that grace is God's personal power working in us, making us willing and able to do his will. And this kind of a living grace, the real thing, uh, really sets us free. Uh, we don't need to burn up our energies with sin and then fighting sin. We, we're set free uh, to do the, the good things that God has uh, prepared for us to do. And we do this for God's glory and for the blessing of others. Heavenly Father, we need your grace so desperately. But we go along and take it for granted well, this is just another day. I had to get up an hour early, but yeah, we'll make it. We don't even think how desperately we depend upon you. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would remind every single person here that we are dependent upon your personal power working in us and that you actually make us willing and able to do your will. And may you be glorified, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.